pray. Father, we have heard the word, and now our desire is to, is to know what it's all about. Would you, would you come and help us to unfold John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34? I pray that you would give us life as we see Jesus in these pages. I pray that you would correct us and convict us. I ask that we would see wonderful things in the scriptures today. Lord, above all, I pray that you might even give new life to some in the congregation with us who, who do not have a saving faith in Jesus. I pray that you would do the, the miracle of the new birth this morning as I preach. And so these things are out of our hands. They're in your hands, but that's why we ask that you would come now, Holy Spirit, and have your way with us. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Some truths in the Bible are comforting. Uh, Psalm 23, verse 1 comes to mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Other certainties in the scriptures are sobering. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14 falls into this category with me, where the author says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness of without which no one will see the Lord. That's sobering. So God's word encourages us. It sobers us. Uh, it also delights us, I think. Here I'm thinking about Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. Zephaniah three seventeen says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How could you not be delighted at a truth like that? Loud singing. That's the Lord singing over us as we sing over him. I love it. I am encouraged to say the least. But there's also other kinds of passages in the Bible. Passages that don't comfort us or sober us or encourage us as much as they serve to humble us. Certain truths in the text that remind us that God is very big and we are quite small. That God is rich in spiritual resources and we are essentially bankrupt. At the end of the day, that we're little children that have nothing and must depend upon Almighty God for everything, especially for a saving knowledge of Him. I'm thinking about Matthew eleven twenty seven. You have it written on your sermon outlines. This text teaches this unambiguously. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's humbling. It exposes our need and at the same time reveals Christ's great supply in view of our need. The more I think about it, as, as we work through the Gospel of John together as a church, uh, this truth is one of the great burdens of John as a writer. 
In the gospel, according to John, we are frequently reminded that a saving knowledge of God in Christ cannot be initiated by us. It can only be imparted by him. A saving knowledge of God in Christ cannot be initiated by us. It can only be imparted by him. If you haven't opened up a Bible yet, I'll give you a moment to do that. The text that Seth read for us. Chapter 1, verse 19 of John's Gospel. It's page 886 in those red Bibles. I encourage you to have a Bible open. Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Just two points this morning. Both of them drawn from the text, and they're related to that claim that I just made. That a saving knowledge of God in Christ cannot be, as much as we might want it to be, cannot be initiated by us. It can only be imparted by him. Let's begin with the first point, point one this morning. It is entirely possible to be very, very religious and yet not know Jesus. It is entirely possible to be very, very religious and yet not know Jesus. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, it's mornings like these when such a truth, it just doesn't seem any clearer to us. It's so obvious that that's true when you're in church, uh, when you're with God's people. Um, Those of you among us who have been born again, who don't just profess faith in Christ, but truly possess faith in Christ, you, you know this is true, and you know it especially on mornings like this one. It's obvious to you. But you make that same claim out there this week um, at a party with neighbors or maybe in a locker hallway or perhaps uh, with coworkers, maybe at a family get-together, and look out. Um, That is a disputed claim at best. And furthermore, when you're out there, when you're in the mix of it all, on the front lines, and you have an opportunity to be with folks uh, who are very religious, the thought that they might not know Jesus, that becomes more hazy, becomes more fuzzy. It's not as clear. But that's part of why we come here on Sunday mornings. We come to clear the fog and to clear the haze so that we can head back into the fray tomorrow morning in order to point people to the Savior. We need truths like this one desperately. It's entirely possible to be very, very religious and yet not know Jesus. So look with me once again at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So beginning in verse 19, you see this exchange that begins to unfold between John the Baptist on the one hand and then the Levites, Levites and the priests on the other. It's interesting to note here in passing that John himself is a part of the priestly lineage. John the Baptist's father was a priest named Zechariah. John's mother, Elizabeth, came from the ancient family of Aaron, who was the first priest of Israel. We learn that in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It's also important to point out that right underneath this text is something that the prophet Malachi told us would be true of the forerunner of the Christ. The prophet Malachi says in Malachi 3.3 that he will purify the sons of Levi. He will purify the sons of Levi. It's helpful background to the conversation that takes place between the Levites and John, who comes from this priestly lineage. So in verses 19 to 25, uh, the religious leaders have some questions for John. They want to figure out exactly who he is. And John is quick to offer up in verse 20 that he is certainly not the Messiah. Uh, He's not the Christ. Verse 20 is emphatic. Do you see this? It's kind of awkward, but the point is emphasis. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Are we clear? Right? (laughs) J.C. Ryle comments wonderfully on this verse when he says, It gives the idea of a man shrinking with holy indignation from the very thought of being regarded as the Christ. Pain me not by suggesting that such a one as I can be the Christ of God. I am far inferior to him. That's what J.C. Ryle says. That's true. He's saying, I'm not the Christ. Don't even, don't even suggest that. And they don't. They're, they're scared to suggest it. He denies it. Verse 27, it's even more clear. He says that he's not even fit to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. That, that may not mean much to us, um, but in this culture, that's a, that's a big statement. Uh, third century Jewish writer, Rabbi Joshua Levi, taught that, quote, all manner of service a slave must render to his master, a pupil must render to his teacher, except the taking off of his shoe. Which is another way of saying that John is making the claim that a task to primitive, too debasing, even for a disciple, is something that he is not even worthy to render to Jesus. The Christ is so far above him, the strap of his sandal, I am not worthy to untie. I'm not the Christ. Then the next two questions that John gets asked are in verse 20. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Both questions have a negative answer. John says no in both cases. And yet, Jesus, at least, in the Gospel of Matthew, seems to make a contrary claim. Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven fourteen, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. <clears throat> a little earlier in Matthew eleven nine, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the Baptist, and he said, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. So both of these questions 
have to do with specific Old Testament prophecies. The promise of Elijah is found in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Also in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. The promise of the prophet has its source from the words of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15. Well, John denies that he is either of them. Jesus appears to affirm that he's clearly at least one of them. He's at least Elijah. So, what's the answer to the puzzle? There's several different ways to reconcile it. One may be that John did not know exactly who he was. He may not have understood the full import of what he was there to do, and I think that's possible. It also might be that John was saying that he's not the end-time prophet, Elijah, who's going to appear right before the end when uh, Jesus comes to wrap up history. He's saying, I'm not the reincarnation of Old Testament, Elijah. That's possible, too. I'm not sure what the answer is. But what is important is what John clearly latches on to about himself. Verse 23, he claims to be the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. John says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay, now that's a lot of scripture, a lot of Old Testament background. Just take a breath here, step back, and ask, what's the point of this section of scripture? What is this all about? It's an interesting exchange. It's good fodder for Bible trivia. But what lesson do we draw from it? I think the lesson is in verses 25 and 26. They asked him, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. You hear what John is saying? Understand? He's saying it's entirely possible to be very, very religious and yet not know Jesus. Verse 26 again, among you stands one you do not know. So the the priests and the Levites, for all of their Bible knowledge, for all of their priestly pedigree, they didn't know the Messiah when he appeared. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Can this happen today? It is happening today. It's happening among ethnic Israel, by and large. It's also happening among non-ethnic Israel. It's happening everywhere we look. Lifelong church attenders, Protestant, Catholic, Evangelical, Orthodox, acolytes, altar boys, people giving, serving, singing, teaching, preaching, going to Christian colleges, going to seminaries, teaching at seminaries, writing books about the faith. People that do not know Him. You say, you're kidding. No, I'm not. You say, how could it be? Sincere people in church that may not be Christians. Yes. Yes. 
That's exactly what I'm saying. A saving knowledge of God in Christ cannot be initiated by us. It can only be imparted by him. It's entirely possible to be very, very religious and yet not know Jesus. Quick show of hands if this is your story like it is mine. You had a lot of church under your belt, a lot of religion for a period of time, and then you met Jesus. Yeah. Happens. Happens more often than you might think. John's words to the priests and Levites here in verse 26 ought to haunt us. Among you stands one you do not know. This is in large measure what makes our mission so complicated. Well, how can you know? If a saving knowledge of God in Christ can't be initiated by us, it can only be imparted by him, how can you be sure that you know him? This is why the Apostle John is such a good guide. This is one of his specialty questions. John wrote a whole book, the letter of 1 John, to help us with the answer to this one. Um, In the letter of 1 John, toward the end, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know it. So assurance, assurance of salvation. That's what the letter of 1 John is all about. John also, uh, just in a few weeks, we'll be looking at John chapter 3 when he begins to tackle this topic. Uh, We come to grips with the issue of assurance there too. But right here in our text this morning, we have some initial pointers, at least two that I can see that are going to help us. The reason we have some pointers to know a little bit more about what it means to possess faith in Christ, not not just profess it, is because this is John the Baptist's own confession. Twice we see it in this paragraph that we're going to read. John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him. This was eye-opening to me this week. So listen now afresh to verses 29 to 34. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The second point this morning has two parts. First part, those who truly know Jesus treasure the truth that the Son of God is the Lamb of God. Those who truly know Jesus treasure the truth that the Son of God is the Lamb of God. Now, religious people know this truth too, so don't get confused. I knew this truth for a long time coming up and didn't know Jesus, so don't be fooled. But there is a difference between knowing that something is true and treasuring that something is true. There's a significant difference. It's the difference between having the answers and cherishing the answers. Verse 29, John the Baptist cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
you get the sense that with John, this is not just a, 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 a duty. It's not just a profession of faith. This is his life. He believes this down to his toes. And then he adds in verse 31, I myself did not know him. I didn't even know him. Which is fascinating because they were related. Their mothers were relatives. So there's a sense in which he knew him, but there's also a sense in which he did not know the Christ. So for John to call Jesus the Lamb of God here and to do it right on the heels of the Passover celebration of the Jews is to make a major league statement about the identity of Jesus. Uh, The Passover is on the horizon. Chapter 2, verse 13, John says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And John leaves a few time stamps throughout chapter 1 and 2 of this gospel to show you that this is just days away. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 29, then in verse 35 and verse 43, and then chapter 2, verse 1, we learn that the Passover is just days away. So the Jews are thinking blood sacrifice. That's already on their minds. And he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. The first Passover meal is described in Exodus chapter 12. A Jewish family was to prepare a roasted lamb. And then the blood of that lamb was to be painted on the doorpost of the home. And the Lord told the Israelites in Exodus 12, 13, that when I see the blood, I will pass over you and spare the lives of those that are inside. And it's, it's hundreds of years later that in about the 8th century B.C., the prophet Isaiah picks up the same imagery of a sacrificial lamb. This time he casts that lamb in terms of a person. Isaiah 53, verse 7, Isaiah describes a person who will be pierced for the transgressions of his people, crushed for their iniquities. In Isaiah 53, 7, he says, this is a lamb, like a lamb, led to the slaughter. And here in verse 29, right on the eve of Passover, John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those who truly know Jesus treasure the truth that the Son of God is the Lamb of God. It's one thing to know this truth in principle. It's another thing to experience this truth up close and personal. One of my favorite Uh, Younger pastors and authors that's out there today is a man named Jared Wilson. Jared Wilson, uh, not long ago, posted a series of of tweets called My Friend Jesus. Uh, Just recently, he gathered all of those into one blog post last week. And uh, here is what some of Jared Wilson says about his friend. See if this is you. I love my friend Jesus because the blood of his sacrifice speaks a better word than the sweat of my effort. And he shouts it triumphantly. I love my friend Jesus because he took my death even though he had plenty of time to think it over and every reason to say no. I love my friend Jesus because while the crowd gathers with their stones on that side, he stands on this side of the line with me. Reference to John chapter 8. I love my friend Jesus because he doesn't just erase the records against me. He burns the record book and scatters the ashes to nothing. I love my friend Jesus because he straight up, no hesitations, no qualifications, no ifs, ands, or buts, loves me. That's someone who knows that the Son of God 
is the Lamb of God. Someone who knows Jesus as treasure, not just as true. How many of us know Jesus that way? Another way that we can truly know Jesus is that those who truly know Jesus treasure the truth that the Son of God baptizes with the Spirit of God. This is the final point. The Son of God baptizes with the Spirit of God. Now listen once again to these remarkable words from John the Baptist, of all people. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So another, another point here, another aspect of this is that those who truly know Jesus treasure the truth that the Son of God baptizes with the Spirit of God. John the Baptist had no illusions about the difference between the baptism that he administered and the one that was Jesus to administer. Uh, they're worlds apart. As we've studied this before as a church, the verb to baptize means literally to plunge or to immerse or to plummet or submerge something. And John baptized into water, but Jesus baptizes us into God. Water baptism is a sign. Spirit baptism is the reality. Every true Christian ought to be water baptized, but every true Christian is spirit baptized. To the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul says in Titus 3, 5, uh, referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, he calls it the washing of regeneration. If you wonder, should I be baptized next week along with our brother Doug at Surfside next Sunday? The answer is, well, have you been baptized? That's the answer. Those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, those who have been regenerated, those who have been born again, those who have turned from their sins and have placed their faith in Jesus definitively, have been baptized into the Spirit, into Christ, and you ought to be baptized into water. But only Jesus holds the key for this one. Water baptism, in other words, is not a crank that we turn and out on the other side pops a Christian. Doesn't work that way. It's another thing that religious people get confused on. It's not a lever that God must respond to. Thousands and thousands of people across the world today have been water baptized and have not been spirit baptized. It shouldn't be, but there's a pretty massive margin for error. The question is not, have you been dipped into water or sprinkled or whatever? The question is, have you been immersed into Jesus? Have you been immersed with the Spirit by Jesus? Plunged, plummeted, submerged into God? That's the question. Only Jesus can do it. This morning, I invite you, if you did not come to the sanctuary this morning with a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to come to him. 
John wrote this passage that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may have come in a very religious person or have come in comparatively irreligious. doesn't matter. The question is, has he been revealed to you today? In the word of God. If he's been revealed, will you respond to him by grace, through faith? No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Is he revealing himself to you now? If so, turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to come and talk to me about it, I'll be standing in the back afterwards. One of our elders, Randy Johnson, will be down here in front after the benediction. would be thrilled to talk with you about what it means to embrace Christ. A saving knowledge of God in Christ cannot be initiated by us. It can only be imparted by him. It is possible, entirely possible, to be very, very religious and yet not know Jesus. Those who truly know Jesus treasure the truth that the Son of God is the Lamb of God and the Son of God baptizes with the Spirit of God. Next week, we'll gather in part with the hope of finishing chapter one of the gospel according to John and then only 20 more chapters. We're almost there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is humbling. It's unnerving uh, to know that the power doesn't lie with us to rescue other people or to rescue ourselves. And yet, we're just stepping into reality when we admit this. Salvation is of the Lord. Lord Jesus, anyone you choose to reveal your Father to comes to you, can come to you and be saved. And so I pray that you would do that revealing work right now. Take these truths and press them into our lives. Lord God, I pray that those who came, who ought to have assurance of salvation, but, but came with something less than that this morning, I pray that they would have rock under their feet that they would treasure their friend Jesus, that they would see the Lamb of God who bore the sin of the world, that they would treasure the truth that Jesus baptizes with that spirit. Lord, we ought to have assurance of salvation if we're indeed saved, so grant that by the power of your spirit, I pray. And help us to press out now into this community that so deeply needs, desperately needs to hear the gospel. Help us to be quick to spread the good news of our friend Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.